0: Why are you kicking the worship team stuff, Dr. Joe? That's not cool. (laughs) I wanted to, uh, this passage is going to be about love. The name of the message is a guide to loving one another. And uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. Um, John, who preached here a couple weeks ago, we went out to lunch with him after the service, and I just asked him his takeaway from being with the body. And exactly what this passage preaches on was what he took away. He said, that body is just so full of love. And um, I, they just received the word with such eagerness. And I felt so encouraged preaching to them. So thank you for being the kind of body that when I preach a passage like this, I can give a word of encouragement, of exhortation, but it doesn't have to be an admonishment. That's You guys are precious, and I love you, and I'm privileged to be a pastor here. Thank you. Um, so. As we dig into 1 John this morning, we're digging into the topic that the Apostle John was most known for, uh, the topic of love. Um, John is actually known as the Apostle of love, and he writes about love more than any other New Testament author. Wouldn't it be awesome? to be known as the apostle of love. I mean, I don't know if I would, I would want apostle in my, my title, but to just be known by love, to be the designation in which you are known for. And, and this guy was so identified with love that he's forever associated through all of history as being a man who loves. And what a difference between this John And the John we see early in the Gospels. John was an angry young man who is known as the son of thunder. But that's what the Gospel does, doesn't it? It takes a son of thunder and turns him into an apostle of love. That's our gospel. That's the good news. And I want to ask, even just from the onset and the intro, is God doing that in your life? Is he transforming you from being a son of thunder into being the apostle of love? And this is the second of three passages in 1 John that are calling the body of Christ to love. The first one has to do with contrasting the new heart that we've received in Christ versus the coldness of our old heart of stone. So the, the old covenant heart versus the heart that has received that new covenant in his blood and he's taken away your heart of stone and he's given you a heart of flesh that's able to respond to him. That's what the first passage about love was about. It makes the point that a regenerated heart should no longer be able to live in hatred. As children of God, we should be known by what we love rather than what we hate. And and I want to just be honest. Right Right from the beginning, we have a lot of work to do in that area. We are fighting an uphill battle as the church in 2018 in America. The church is portrayed to the world as being known for what we are against, not for what we stand for. And by what we hate, more than what we love. If you were to survey a bunch of people who had no interest in Christianity and you asked them their thoughts on evangelical Christianity, that would be the answer. They would define us by who and what we hate. And this one picks up on that same contrast of hatred versus love, but it takes it a little bit deeper and makes it a little bit more specific. And it goes into this idea of selfishness versus self Selflessness that's sacrificial. And I promise you, I will mess up those two words multiple times in this sermon. Um, it's happened every time I preach about selflessness. Uh, in Philippians 2, I recently preached about the selfishness of Christ. And obviously, just use context to know which word I'm talking about if it tongue twists me. But uh, I know that this is not politically correct to, to say, but without Jesus changing our hearts, We love in a selfish manner. Um, I'm going to just lay my premise on the table from the start. Without the work of the gospel in our lives, our love is self-motivated. That's what this passage is going to drill down. And if you want proof of this, I remember before I was a Christian and I was looking into um, the things that I thought were the most open-minded religions out there. The ones that nobody really had to make a choice on anything. And you could just love everybody and have this hodgepodge kind of spiritualism. And and, and I would often talk about the doctrine of karma during that time. And if you want proof of what I'm saying about self-motivated love, just dig into the doctrine of karma. Because karma, in its roots says that I love you so that I can earn some sort of points. It's all based on reciprocation. And reciprocation is not love because reciprocation means doing that for something that will end up coming back to me. That's not love. That's rooted in self, even though the whole point is supposedly detachment from self. So in this passage, we learn that true love, as defined by Jesus is selfless and sacrificial. There's a progression in gospel-driven, sacrificial, selfless love, and you can't skip any of the steps in the progression or there's a breakdown somewhere. I think I have a slide that shows the the progression. First, we are loved by the sacrificial love of God, resulting in a love for God resulting in a sacrificial love for others. It's simple, but John is trying to keep it simple. It's not supposed to be complex. And that's what we're going to be seeing this morning. But before we get into this passage... Let me mention this. This is a new earpiece, and, I, and so that's why I'm fiddling with it. And there we go. Um, no, that's not what I wanted to mention, though. Um, I want to mention this, that John, the reason John receives and uh, gives three different teachings on love is with each of them, he goes a little bit deeper into the heart. The first one started out pretty vague. You should love and you should not hate. Um, Well, now John's going to go a step deeper and go from the general to the specific. And in doing so, he's really going to speak the language of your hearts. So now, as we go and look into hearts this morning, I mean, the series is called A Guide to the Christian Life, right? And to dig deep in to love is necessary because the Christian life is not the Christian life if it's devoid of love without love Christianity is simply not Christianity it strikes to the very core of what it means to be a child of God, what it means to have a new heart regenerated by God, and what it means to be someone who has embraced and been changed by the amazing love of God. So we're going to do some heart surgery this morning. I really, really encourage you, leave your hearts open to be provoked to go deeper into love. So I find it fascinating that he starts in verse 10. Verse 10. John's connecting practicing righteousness and practicing love is the marks of what it means to look like a child of God in God's eyes. Look back at verse 10, but by this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. And then to verse 11, for this is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So he gives two examples of how you know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are, according to his words. Children of God will practice a lifestyle of righteousness. Andy knocked that out of the park last week and preached that very, very well. And children of God will practice a lifestyle of love, which is what the rest of this chapter is going to talk about. And. I think the reason that he chooses these two defining marks to be able to describe an authentic Christian life and then smushes them together all in one verse is because of the danger of trying to practice one of these without the other. So love without righteousness. Let me break that down to you for a minute. This is one of the current problems that has the church in such a mess right now. Love and acceptance are not synonyms. Hear me on that, folks. Love and acceptance are not synonyms. Tolerance has at its motivation that if I tolerate you, you will tolerate me. That's why I get so, or people get so bent out of shape when you bring up tolerance. Because if you're intolerant towards some behavior, then that means you might not tolerate my behavior. But if I tolerate whatever you want to do and you do the same, then we both undermine there being any kind of objective standard of righteousness. Look, tolerance is not the same thing as love. It is a cheap, cheap substitute. Whenever I see those tolerance bumper stickers, it makes my, me shake my head and just ask the question, why? Why is this something that you want to celebrate? People think that it's a sign that they are so open-minded. Look, tolerance is a weak, unacceptable substitute to the love that Christ is calling us to. We want something deeper than tolerance as Christians. We want love. I don't want to just tolerate people that are different from me. Anybody could do that. That doesn't take the Spirit of God working on your heart to just tolerate people that are different from me. It takes the Spirit of God for me to love somebody who is profoundly different from me. And that's so much deeper than mere tolerance. Amen? The other danger is the flip side of that, righteousness without love. And if you've experienced righteousness without love, you can testify that it just doesn't feel right. As a matter of fact, it can downright hurt, and it does a lot of damage. And John puts the two together because they were never intended to be separate from one another. Righteousness without love is not actually righteousness. I'm going to pound this point this morning. In fact, it couldn't be further from righteousness because righteousness means that you are taking on more and more of the character of God in your life. And you're decreasing while God is increasing in your life. Well, God is love, which we're going to see in the next chapter of 1 John. So if you pretend to be high and mighty and righteous, but have no love in your heart, it is merely a demonstration of your immaturity. It it amazes me. That people, like I described, are often put into places of church leadership when the reality is their lack of love should be a disqualifying factor and they should be nowhere near a place of leading God's people. That's what, that's what got Moses in trouble for, for striking the rock, right? They demonstrate God is angry and standoffish. To his people. And it's an evidence that they have no business being anywhere near leading a church. And when they're put in places of church leadership, they hurt people with their brand of self righteousness mixed with zero love. And then in verse 11, he goes on to say that, that we demonstrate our love, and it's supposed to be the litmus test of whether we really even belong to the Lord. Again, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one. Another. This verse is supposed to be foundational. I, I got to tell you, I used to be impressed by people who knew a lot of facts about their Bible. And, you know, they, they love it when you're impressed with them because people like that um, get off on that kind of stuff. It's their trophy, if you, if you will. Um, you know what, I'm a lot more impressed these days with somebody who knows how to weep because they're broken over something than somebody who knows how to recite a lot of facts. My Google can recite a lot of facts, but it can't love somebody with the love of Christ. My commentaries know all the facts, but my commentary can't go and extend grace and mercy to another human being. The reason that John puts love at the foundational stage, that's what he means when he says you've heard from the beginning, is because if there's no love, then all of this stuff is pointless. This is is a show. It's a charade. People that are high on truth and low on love are also low on the Spirit. Hear me on that. People who are high on truth but low on love are low on the Spirit. You can't really be all that high on truth if you're not high on love anyway. Because if you were, then you would know that God's word demands that you would be loving. I meet people all the time who have been victims of loveless righteousness. Often the people that love like that, they love to wax poetic about the doctrines of grace, and it sends a really confusing message. Parents, do you want to raise children that will want absolutely nothing to do with Jesus when they leave your house? Preach the importance of the doctrine of grace, but fail to extend grace when they struggle. Ungracious people who wax poetic about the doctrines of grace distort grace, and it distorts the character of God. If you want a church full of stuck up snobs, teach the doctrines of grace but refuse to become a community of grace. Teach the doctrines of depravity and stand up here and have people give testimonies of. Oh, it was in my sin that Christ came and loved me. It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for the ungodly. It was in the midst of my depravity but God, Ephesians 2.4. And then nail people to the wall every time they disappoint you. And see what kind of message that sends. You will have a church that no one in their right mind would ever attend. When I meet ungracious people who spout off the doctrines of grace with great precision, but refuse to be gracious people, I'm trying to find a nice way to say they make me sick to my stomach, but um, they make me sick to my stomach. They don't deserve a nice way to have said that. There's churches that are full of people like that. And you know what? People like that are used to being catered to. You know how many times I've had somebody just spout off about how theologically precise they were, but just be a jerk and expect that I'm going to bend to their will? No. Just because you're smart and you're mean doesn't make you right. So in the rest of the passage, John's going to show the importance of the centrality of love to the Christian life. And he's going to contrast it with selfish love and gospel-driven selfless love. And to show you the difference between selfish and selfless love, he uses an example from the Old Testament, Cain and Abel. Would you look with me at verses 12 and 13? We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, when the world hates So why would he use the story of Cain and Abel out of all the stories in the Bible to contrast gospel-driven love versus what love is supposed to look like? I think there's a bunch of reasons that make this the perfect illustration. John is dealing with the love for those within the body of Christ, and he continually uses the word brother in this Text And while Cain and Abel deals with two actual brothers in this text, John is going to define selflessness while the story of Cain and Abel is about an improper sacrifice and selfishness. So John is going to define the love of Jesus laying down his life for his brothers while the story of Cain and Abel is about taking the life Of your brother. And he shows how things like hatred and envy and strife are all built on selfish love or self love or not real love or however you want to put it. I read a great quote by somebody in preparation for this message. It goes like this You will never hate someone whom you have loved as greater than yourself. Let me repeat that. You will never hate someone whom you have loved as greater than yourself. If people embraced that statement, every single church split that's ever happened could have been avoided. It amazes me how Christians go from professing to love one another to having animosity against somebody at the snap of a finger. If we truly made a practice of loving others as greater than ourselves, then we would not feel the need to demonize people that we disagree with. Cain definitely did not love his brother as greater than himself, and you see what results. And our examples might not be as extreme as Cain's, but the same thing happens to us when we do not love others as greater than ourselves, which is why John then goes directly to the heart. Look with me at verses 13 through 15. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not abide love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So verse 13 gives one of the greatest reasons why the church has to be a community of love. Because if you are living a righteous life, then you will experience hardship in this world. Isn't that what Dr. Ambrose just shared about? That... All those who live godly in Christ shall be persecuted and shall face hardship. So the church has to be a respite. The church has to be a safe haven. The church has to be a place that you could go to from being beaten up by this world and be able to find a place of grace and mercy and love and encouragement. I am convinced that lack of encouragement is the biggest reason that people walk away from the church. So friends, just as Cain's offering was unacceptable to God, a loveless Christianity is unacceptable to God. That's the point that he's making. And it goes two ways. If your understanding of Christianity does not result in understanding love, then you've not arrived at biblical Christianity. And if it doesn't arrive at you extending love, then you've not arrived at biblical Christianity. But then in verse 16, John moves from selfish love onto the greatest example of selfless love that this world has ever seen. I love this verse. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So by this we know love, Christ. Love is the prism that makes us see love. Have you ever noticed that every great love story, secular or sacred, has at its core the sacrificial love of a main character that laid down their life for another? That is not because people are trying to retell the story of the gospel. It's because they can't help But explain the gospel when they tell love, because by this we know love, the sacrificial life of Christ who laid down his life for another. So like Cain could only offer an unacceptable sacrifice, Christ offered the perfect sacrifice in our place. I use 1 John 3.16 in almost every wedding I do. I used it last week at Eric's wedding and Holly's wedding, if any of you were here, because it hits to the heart of two people vowing to love one another. I've never counseled with people struggling in their marriage that were laying down their lives sacrificially and selflessly for one another. Never. If the gospel is used as a prism to explain how to love, then it calls us both to action and repentance in terms of how we love, and we can never stray too far from the posture of love in our hearts. Often when two people are refusing to love one another, I do a simple exercise where I sit down and I, I just remind them of aspects of the gospel. I do this, and some of you have done this with me in marriage counseling. I, I, I just write the word gospel I ask them to tell them tell me their issues and um, then I say tell me some aspects of the gospel. Just, not things that are just generally true of Christianity. Tell me some aspects of the gospel. I'll start off sacrificial. You guys start to yell some out um, to me. Okay. Forgiveness. Boom. Great one. Gratitude—that's more our response to the gospel, but that is a great response. We could go, we can go on and, and on and on. You could put reconciliation. You could put redemption atonement, or the covering, like I taught you guys a couple weeks ago. And I go through these with somebody who's struggling in their marriage, and I often say, which of these truths that were true of the way that you've embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're banking your eternity on, which of these truths are you not allowing to enter into your marriage in the way that you see your spouse as you're struggling and often you'll start to see that there is not a sacrificial element. You have two people digging in their heels saying, no, I need to get mine. No, I need to get mine. Or you'll start to see that there's been an issue and they're just not allowing reconciliation into their lives. So I just walk them back to the gospel and I say, how would the good news even be good news? If we weren't able to be reconciled to the one whom we have offended more than anybody could possibly offend somebody in this life, it cost God the life of his very son. How could we have good news if Christ wasn't willing to be sacrificial on our behalf? And I just allow the gospel to walk them through the issues in their marriage. And usually they'll be like, oh, can I take this with me? Um, can, Can you show me how to do that? And that's the beauty of it. There is no do that, it's just the gospel. It's just taking the good news of Jesus and taking it from being merely theological and allowing it to practically inform the way that we live our lives. That's the good news. That's what John is trying to get at in verse 16. He's saying, by this, you know love. It's the understanding. It's the prism. It's the way that you see love. So therefore, it should be the way that we extend love to one another. Amen? So what John is saying here is a definition for love. And and it's devoted to selflessness and sacrifice for the sake of another. What John is getting across is that loveless Christianity should be an oxymoron. It should not exist. And I I, I would, you know what? I'm going to move on. I won't say that because of time. The rest of the paragraph goes on to show us how love results in action. And I'll close with this. So look with me again at... Starting in verse 16, um, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. Uh, This is really just laying out the example of Jesus. This is showing how Jesus came and loved us. And and as I preach this, there's two tensions that I want to avoid. I've listened. I I don't want to preach this in a way that makes you feel like you're not doing this. That's why I just wanted to affirm you guys as a loving body before we get into this. There's no sermon that I hate more than when the pastor stands up and just assumes that you're not obeying the text. Um, you, You don't know me. You haven't followed me around. <laughs> so don't give just a shot across the bow. I've sat and listened to missionaries that have sat and told the congregation that they don't have a heart for the lost. I've had worship leaders sit and tell the congregation that they don't really care about worship. So one tension is I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to preach this in a way that makes it sound like I think that you're not sacrificially loving one another. But the other tension is this passage calls us to something and we have to allow it to call us to something no one loves perfectly selflessly other than Jesus Christ himself and every one of you including me has a long way to go in terms of applying this passage to our lives Look, my fear is I'm just gonna be frank my fear is that there are people here who have gone way too long without experiencing the grace of conviction in their lives I talked to some people about scripture and we could share facts back and forth with one another, but it never ends up getting into the language of their heart. If you approach a passage like this, like you already know it, and you listen to a sermon, and the takeaway is, I really like the illustration that he gave, then you're missing the point of sitting under the preached word of God. Look, I don't care if you like my illustrations. I don't care if you don't like my illustrations. They're only helpful in so much as it helps to apply the word of God to your hearts. Uh, That's what an illustration is all about. I don't see how anybody could look at this passage and not take something to heart. Listen to this again. By this we know love, that he loved us by laying down his life for us in the same way you should be laying down your lives for your brother. Does anybody look at this and say, yep, already nailed that don't need to hear any more about that. All of you are called to a ministry of sacrificial love. I know that a lot of people feel that they've been called to the ministry of critiquing to the glory of God. Um, it's amazing to me that that's the one gift that Paul never lists in any of the lists of gifts in 1 Corinthians or in Romans, yet so many people seem to have it. Churches would be so much healthier if if people really grasped the concept of being able to defer and sacrifice their preferences for the sake of loving one another. Christianity is not about having your preferences met. It should be one takeaway that you could grab from this passage. I prefer the music not to be so loud in this place. I prefer when the pastor wears a suit jacket when he preaches and, and actually shows respect to the Word of God. And, you know, I've, I've, done, this, I've done this before. I prefer contemporary worship music. I, I prefer... Hymns. I prefer passing the tray in communion rather than the weird way that they do it. And I want to ask you if this message was any better when I was wearing a jacket and a nice shirt than to where I'm wearing my Golden Girl shirt, then B. Arthur is staring at you disapprovingly right now. <laughs> Christianity is not about checking the boxes of your preferences. Who cares? There's so much that we could care about. You know what? Before I'm just going to be just bluntly honest, because my Golden Girl shirt brings it out. Uh, I haven't spent any time in the last month laboring for the people in Pakistan. But now hearing Dr. Ambrose come up, I'm like, man, that's, that's something I should care about. That's something that should impact my heart. And you know what? You know I I haven't spent a month, any time on my knees for the people in Pakistan in the last month. Because I care about way too much dumb stuff that I don't need to end up taking time to care about. Christianity isn't about having your preferences Matt. It's about loving. You've never heard of a church splitting because people are too busy sacrificially loving one another. Have you ever heard this story? Yeah, we had a church split. Why? Because everyone was so busy sacrificially loving one another and laying down their preferences that there was just no room for all of that under one roof. So I finally had to say something, that if you're going to keep sacrificially loving me like that, then I'm going to take my humility and sacrificial love elsewhere because we can't coexist. Have you ever heard of that church split? Because it's never happened and it never will. That's the point of the passage. That's the point of the gospel. And John warns us, don't just love in word. This needs to be indeed in deed and truth, meaning that person that frustrates you or agitates you, you don't just get to say, Well, they frustrate or agitate. No, you're still called to love them. That's what it means to not just love in word. So, as we prepare to close, I tried to hammer two specific points from so many angles that I could tenderize your hearts. And I just want to ask for two minutes to speak to your hearts with the, with the application questions. How are you doing in this area of sacrificial love? If you're having a hard time extending sacrificial love, I want to ask you how deeply are you allowing the gospel to sink into your hearts, to transform your hearts? So you may notice in your bulletin that I was supposed to go up to verse 24. I I didn't because I'm convinced that it's actually connected to chapter 4 exegetically. We'll get into that stuff next week. But a couple of questions. Does Does your love incorporate both grace and a biblical standard of righteousness? Is it both? Are you able to love without seeing attention between the two. Brothers and sisters, grace and truth are not meant to be in opposition to one another. And I get sick when I hear people say, like, oh, that's too much of a grace guy over there. You don't hear those categories in the Bible. They were never supposed to be two ends of a spectrum. They were supposed to come together in harmony, like John 1.14 says about Jesus Christ, that he was the embodiment of grace and truth. Do you believe and live the doctrines of grace because I refuse to be a pastor of a stuffy reformed church where we believe the doctrines of grace we don't live them with every ounce of our lives has your Christianity brought you to a place where you can lay aside your preferences for the sake of loving one another because love has gripped your heart are there areas where you've been hating somebody and you've made it a practice of loving somebody greater than yourself that that could change? How long has it been since your heart was genuinely provoked to conviction? And I mean genuinely, where you felt, this is a work of the Spirit going on in my heart. And when is the last time that you were provoked to love in a truly sacrificial manner? Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to be able to speak of your love and your sacrifice. God, thank you that you have loved us, Lord. Thank you that you have loved even me, a sinner, Lord. God, I pray that we would, as we come and partake of that love and taste of it through communion, that we would be people that extend it as well. In Jesus' name, amen.